Hello and welcome to the Thursday edition of the Upper Bowl GM Podcast. My name is Nick Zerars. And before we get into today's show, I do want to say I hope Jake Evans of the Montreal Canadiens is doing what better. That was a really, really nasty hit at the end of the game. There was absolutely no excuse for what Mark Shifley did. He knowingly did not make any attempt to play the puck to prevent Evans from scoring the empty net goal. He instead committed a charging penalty at the very least, struck Evans in the chest. Evans whipped his head back, hit the ice pretty hard. Evans had to be stretchered off of the ice. Shifley is one of my favorite players in the league, and it sucks that he did something so wrong, so fucked up, that he would disrespect the opponent that much, that he would take a shot at someone knowing that it could hurt them. And that's the one thing I've never understood about players who throw those kinds of dirty hits. I don't think Mark Shifley had the reputation or track record of being a dirty player, but you make a hit like he did at the end of the game on Wednesday night. And yeah, that is most certainly, certainly a dirty and unnecessary hit. That game is over. Evans puts the puck in the net before Shifley hits him. And if Shifley made an attempt to play the puck, he probably could have prevented a goal from being scored. And sure, I don't think the Jets were going to miraculously score twice in the last 10, 20 seconds, last minute or so, about what how much time was left. But that's not the point. I always get befuddled by guys who, especially talented players, who throw a dirty hit like that because there's supposed to be that inherent respect amongst those. Once you step on the ice as competitors, there's a mutual respect and understanding that you're not going to try and hurt anyone out here. You're not going to try and end anyone's career, affect anyone's livelihood, because you wouldn't want anyone to do the same thing to you. Sure, you might want to throw your body around, knock someone off a puck, but that's different from trying to injure someone. The intent to injure is a real thing that comes up and is part of the disciplinarian process. Shifley is going to probably get a hearing for the hit he delivered on Evans. How long will his suspension be? If the NHL were smart, they'd make it the rest of the series. They would say at minimum it's six games. Actually, you know what? They should probably say it's 10 games. That way if he appeals it down, it'll be down to six games. You don't even want to create a circus-like atmosphere. You don't want to create an environment like you did with Tom Wilson and the Rangers where the Rangers felt they had to get their revenge for Artemi Panarin getting hurt. You don't want that kind of situation. Take Shifley out of this series. No dirty hits. You have the officials tell both teams before the game starts. Anything even slightly questionable. You're out of here. I'm not playing any games. We don't want anyone getting hurt. These are the NHL playoffs. It is supposed to be about hockey. Not guys gooning it up, not guys trying to extract their pound of flesh, and not guys throwing dirty hits like Shifley did. I, I'm genuinely, genuinely hurt that a player like Shifley would do something like that. Today's show will be centered around my early impressions of the second round of the NHL playoffs. It won't be a particularly long episode because it's early in the second round. There's still a lot of story to be told, a lot of games to be played in some of these series, but some early things I've noticed. But before I get to today's show, I do have to remind everyone to support however you can. Whatever podcasting platform you're listening to this show on, whether it be Spotify, Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Stitcher, 
any of those, if it's not one of those platforms and you want to listen to the show and you're listening to this on like Spotify web player, let me know. I can get the RSS feed for this show up on any site. It is free to host the show on if there's a platform you prefer. If you are listening on any of those platforms, please subscribe. If you are on Apple Podcasts, you have an added responsibility. Go to the show's landing page. Go to the bottom. There are five clear purple stars. Hit the one furthest to the right. That's leaving a five-star review. That helps me out. That helps the show chart. If the show charts, more people are able to find it. Beneath that is a purple button with purple lettering that says write a review. If you have the time, leave a couple words of encouragement. The comments help the show chart. It helps other people join the conversation and help grow the show. We are working hard. We are plugging away. I hope everyone checked out the blog I wrote on Gotham SN about the Toronto Maple Leafs and where they go from here because five straight first-round exits might seem a bit like time to press the panic button, but I went the complete opposite route. I argued they need to stay the course and double down on speed and skill and find a more efficient style of offense to be able to score more consistently in the postseason. All right, it's time to talk about the playoffs. I'll be right back. I'll see you guys in one second. Back to the line, played around for Petrie. In shot, scores! Jeff Petrie with a point shot, and the Canadians strike first, three and a half minutes in. And with that, we will start with series that will be playing their games on Thursday because, you know, there are games being played on Wednesday night as I'm recording. Uh, the Avalanche and Golden Knights game is midway through the second period. So I will probably conclude with that and the Jets-Montreal series, which only began its first game on Wednesday night because the North Division had wrapped up later than the other divisions. So we'll start with series that will be playing their games on Thursday. I want to start with Tampa Bay and Carolina because I thought this would be the measuring stick series for Carolina where we finally understood if they were ready to break through to that upper echelon of contender that I, I admit, I stuck my neck out. I put my flag in the Hurricanes camp. I thought that this would finally be the year they broke through to that upper echelon of contender because of their goaltending. They finally found someone in Alex Nadelkovich who was really good during the regular season. He had 12.92 goals saved above expectation in the regular season, which is actually more than Andre Vasilevsky of the Tampa Bay Lightning had. And Vasilevsky is almost certainly going to be the Vezina Trophy winner. If not him, it'll be Connor Hellebuck. But Vasilevsky is one of the finalists. And Nadelkovich just didn't play enough games. He only had about 20 starts because he was a rookie. They started the year with Mrazic. They had a run with James Reimer. But all things considered... I always felt Carolina's problem as a team was they didn't have enough goaltending, and it was their undoing last year. And this year during the regular season, Carolina cemented itself as a strong possession darling and had the results to boot and finally had the goalie. I know for a number of years now, I've written about it, I've podcasted about it, that I always felt Carolina was ready to break through once they had goaltending because the five-on-five numbers were electric. They were strong possession drivers. They created a ton of scoring chances and a ton of dangerous scoring chances. And in some ways, were similar to Tampa Bay because their top line, Carolina's, plays similar to Tampa Bay's top line in comparison to the rest of their lineup. When you 
look at Carolina's first line, that Teravainen, Aho, and Svechnikov line. Those are high-skill guys who are going to look to create off the rush, whip the puck around in the offensive zone if they have to engage on a forecheck, and look to create dangerous scoring chances that are going to be finished by a shooter. Whereas if you look at the rest of Carolina's lineup, whether you're talking about the Jordan Stahl line, the Marty Natchez line, or the fourth line, those are lines that are more inclined to dump the puck in deep, play it along the boards, get the puck up to the point, and then look for either a redirect or second-chance scoring opportunity off of a rebound. And that is in similarity to the way Tampa's third and fourth lines play. Tampa's a little bit different because they have two lines that are talented enough to play that skill-based game, which not a lot of teams have the luxury of having two really elite lines like Tampa does. But I really did think that when we saw two teams who played a similar style match up against each other, it would lend to pretty even even series in terms of the play. But Tampa's up two games to none, and it kind of seems like the balloon got popped out of the Carolina pumpkin again. And I will reiterate here what Jay Fresh Hockey, friend of the show, said on Dmitry Filipovich's Hockey PDO cast, which is Carolina is good at cheesing, manipulating, fudging the public underlying numbers that we see, but expected goals, because they love to throw shots on net from any and everywhere. In the regular season, and you would think in the postseason, that would be an advantage. If you constantly have the puck and you're just throwing it at the net and you're putting traffic in front of the net, you would expect that it would hit a guy on the way in or someone would be in a good position to get a second-chance scoring opportunity. Against Tampa, even as dinged up as their back end is, I know they had no David Savard. We know Victor Hedman has been injured since at least early March, if not longer. Ryan McDonough is obviously dinged up. They have not, meaning when I say they, I mean Carolina, they have not been able to defeat Vasilevsky. And it was really telling in game number two, and Jay Fresh made sure to point this out to let all of us average people know that we were overvaluing Carolina's offense because it wasn't predicated on finishing talent. It was predicated on having guys in the area to find those second-chance scoring opportunities. And I talked about it a little bit on the show yesterday about the puck luck that goes into scoring goals in the playoffs. When you're banking on puck luck being your main source of offense, the way Carolina's bottom nine forwards are, it's really hard to beat a good goaltender like Andre Vasilevsky. I felt Carolina had a decent chance in game number two. They had a majority of the shots. But they weren't really getting the puck to great areas. They were fudging a lot of shots into Vasilevsky's pads with no real chance of them going in. And in part, that results in good expected goals numbers. And I've got to know better than to eat the pudding or uh, eat the pie on some not full weight or full calorie expected goals numbers. I, I feel like at this point I should know a little bit better, but... I bought in because I felt like Nedeljkovic could be a difference maker. And Nedeljkovic has been pretty good in the two games. I, I don't think he's been the problem yet for Carolina in this series. I think they need to find a little bit more of that finesse style to some degree because 
yes, in theory, the only way you're going to beat a goaltender like Vasilevsky consistency is those funky bounces, the ones he doesn't really have a chance on. And to create those, you've got to get those point shots and those deflections and those second chances and those redirects and all the things that make playing that style of hockey exciting where every time a defenseman cocks back to shoot from the point you're worried that the puck might end up in the net because there's a scrum of bodies in front of the goaltender hell the goaltender might not even see it because there's so much traffic in front of them but carolina has had a hard time finishing i know they're a little bit dinged up teravinen's missed some time svechnikov's missed some time in this series but i do think I might have been a little bit early. I know I've said that three years in a row now about being early on Carolina, but I really did feel like Nadelkovich would be the difference. And Tampa Bay's talent is just so fucking good, man. I, I know a lot of people out there in the hockey universe are kind of mad that they circumnavigated the salary cap. They had Nikita Kucherov sit out the entire regular season. And the Lightning swear he wasn't ready to play in full contact till the playoffs started. And, yeah, it took him about two games to get up to full speed in that Panther series. But Kucherov looks pretty much like him, his old self. And you're playing him with Point and Stamkos. And there are few teams in the NHL that can match that kind of firepower on their first line. Maybe you want to say Colorado can. Maybe, if you want to be nice, you could say Boston can. But from a fear of firepower, creating scoring chances standpoint, you're going to be hard-pressed to find a better group of guys. And then you start making your way down that lineup. You find Killorn pocket a goal early in that game. You see Anthony Sorelli walk former Ranger Brady Shea, create a breakaway, and beat Nadelkovich on his own. And really quickly, you see how it can spiral against out of control for a team that's going against Tampa Bay because there's just so much talent. And Tampa Bay is not playing amazing. They're not the healthiest team, especially that back. And if you can, I'm not encouraging anyone to go dinging up, but you know, if you keep dumping that puck down below the goal line and you make a slow, a wobbly headman or a dinged up Savard turn their back to the play, go into the corner, retrieve the puck, you ding them up just a little bit every time. You're throwing that hip check trying to win the puck in the corner. That occurs if you can make this series go long. And I'm not saying anyone should try and injure anyone, but I'm saying that's part of the game when you are throwing checks in corners on wobbly defensemen. That's how you impose your will on other teams. If you're playing an aggressive forecheck and you're winning those pucks in the corner, pretty soon those defensemen are going to be tentative going into the corner and you're going to be able to beat them to the puck cleanly and it's going to be easier for you to create offense because you're getting the puck with less of a puck battle. And that is where you could get some interesting results if you are Carolina. And Carolina is more or less at the kitchen sink point down two games to none against a team that's better than you. I would like to see Carolina try and get a little bit more creative in trying to get Ajo some more opportunities to get Marty Natchez more opportunities. I've liked Marty Natchez's game for a few years now, and you, you really are starting to see him find his game as that speed power forward where he's able to bob and weave through traffic and create his own zone entries because he's such a good skater and he's so big and imposing. I'm curious to see if Carolina can get a little bit more inventive with their offense. They need to stay out of the penalty box. That has hamstrung them 
dramatically in this postseason, even against the Predators, who are, by all accounts, are a significantly far inferior team compared to Carolina. But they just could not stay out of the penalty box against Nashville. And I understand part of Carolina's dump the puck in and be a little bit up and down the ice in terms of pace of play and transition you're going to take those tripping penalties, those holding penalties, those uh, interference penalties because you're trying to slow the game down and you'd rather take the penalty as opposed to give up that two-on-one breakaway going the other way. But if they keep giving up penalties to this Tampa power play, you're talking about a unit that's going to have Point, Stamkos, Kucherov, and if they really, really want to load it up, they can put Kalorn up there so he can stand in front of the net, and then you can go Hedman at the point, or you could go um, Mikhail Sergachev at the point, and it's really difficult, even for a team with as talented as a penalty kill as Carolina, who's at times this year used Aho Natchez, and then Brett Pesci and uh, Jacob Slavin on the penalty kill. That's a tall order for those guys to kill, you know, six minutes of penalties in a game, especially against a team as talented as Tampa. It's going to be an uphill battle for Carolina just to make this a series. They definitely have the talent. It's a matter of Rod Brittimore, their coach, finding a way to help them create more offense and more dangerous offense because, yeah, they are throwing a ton of pucks on net and getting some chances, but a handful of dangerous chances against a good goaltender like Vasilevsky you're lucky if you're going to get one of those in and, you know, you're not winning any games against the team like Tampa with only one goal. At minimum, you know you got to get three. You're not going to be able to prevent Tampa from getting two at minimum. Tampa's too good to not get at least two goals pretty much every night. So for Carolina, the bar is at three goals to win the game. At minimum, you're going to need three goals to win. It's doable. Carolina scored a lot in the regular season, but they got to stay off the power penalty kill. They've got to create more at 5-on-5 five five in terms of dangerous scoring chances. And they got to finish. I, I know I talked a bit about puck luck, shooting percentage, all of that. And to some degree, yes, Vasilevsky is goalie in Carolina, that he is that damn good. He is going to be able to cre- prevent those easy chances off of those rebounds and those second-chance opportunities around the net mouth that a lesser goalie might be able not be able to save and – in turn, yes, Carolina is a good regular season team for that reason because they can feast on bad goaltending because of the type of offense they play, how dependent they are in getting that puck in deep, winning those pucks in the corners, and playing with tempo and size and physicality, but also marrying that with skill, which is what Tampa does perfectly, and it's why Tampa finally broke through last year. They found a way to marry their high-end skill with that bit more of a gritty grind-out style. And when I say gritty grind-out style, I mean they got their skill guys to buy into playing a certain way because you got to get the puck to dangerous areas and you got to get it in the hands of shooters, guys like Kucherov, guys like Point, guys like Stamkos, who have above-average shooting talent who are going to be able to finish those dangerous scoring chances. It doesn't do you a ton of good if, you know, Pat Maroon is the one who's in the net mouth looking for a second chance. You want your talented guys with the puck on their stick in those situations. Now, switching gears to the Boston and Islander series, which picks up on Thursday at 
NASA Veterans Memorial Coliseum, which I am sure will be bouncing off of the damn walls in excitement that the Islanders, the home team, stole a game up in Boston. You know what the old adage that all the boomer sports writers say, a series does not start until a road team wins a game. Islanders managed to force overtime in that game, and Casey Sezikis and all his fourth-line glory won that game on a breakaway. Jeremy Lozon had a brutal game number two against the Islanders. Two goals directly resulting off of mistakes by him. One, you know, it kind of deflected off of him. Accident, shit happens. You know, he was just in the wrong place at the wrong time. Goes in off of him past his own goaltender. And then in overtime, makes a mistake on the puck and says he just burns him. In game number one, it felt like the Bruins kind of had the Islanders tamp down strategy defeated they were just skating faster past them to be honest and ideally that's what you do against a team that's trying to clog the neutral zone you just go around them as fast as you can and try and get the puck in the zone before they can set up and to some degree Boston had success with that and yes it snowballed on the Islanders there towards the end of that game number one the final score was not reflective of how close a game it was for a majority of the game I mean it was a tie game for two periods and then the Bruins kind of blew it open in that third the st- game number two was interesting because we saw it happen a few times in that series against the Penguins for the Islanders where they came out kind of slow, didn't have their legs under them. The Penguins were cycling the puck on them, creating a ton of scoring chances, and the Bruins were doing that. They were winning the shots on goal, the scoring chances battle for that first period, and then as the game went along, the Islanders started to get their legs under them, and then... By the time the game was over, the shot total was pretty much even. I'm pretty sure it was 40 to 40 or 41 40. And the Islanders do not have quit in them. And I know I hate talking about intangibles and that kind of stuff, especially because it's hard to measure and it's really hard to say beyond just, you know, me looking at it and seeing it. But a less gutsy team would have just rolled over and died in that game number two because they were being so dramatically outplayed through the first two periods and they still had the game tied and then you get to that third period and the islanders were chasing that game to get it together they forced that overtime and i don't think the islanders have the horses to win this series outright even if it were to go seven games but i do think they have the cohesive team, the strategy, and the system to get to that seventh game. And, you know, anything can happen in a game seven. That That's what makes game seven so exciting as sports fans is anybody can be a hero in a game seven. You get a game seven to overtime. It doesn't matter who the hell you're playing. Think about the Ottawa Senators team that got to double overtime in the Eastern Conference final in 2017. They're a goal away from going to the Stanley Cup final and hell. Anything can happen. That Ottawa Senators team was not that talented. That was a team playing the trap with Mark Stone, Eric Carlson, Kyle Turris. Not a whole lot of juice on that team, but they were able to get there. That's all you got to do is give yourself a chance to win. And thus far in the postseason, we've seen the Islanders give themselves a chance to win a lot of these games through goaltending playing really well, 
They went back to Varlamov, which I thought was interesting after game number one. I think you kind of have to stick with him at least for game number three, if not the rest of this series. But Varlamov looked good. He, he stole quite a few golden scoring opportunities for the Bruins. And against a Bruins team that's extremely talented, especially considering the Bruins have kind of figured out their forward problems, they've got that second line going where even if it's not creating excuse me, even if it's not finishing scoring chances, it's creating scoring chances. And that's what you're looking for here. You want to have as many chances as possible to score, and you want to keep the series alive as long as possible. If you're the Islanders, you want to turn this series into a slog. You want to make the Bruins fight for every inch of ice. You want to funnel the forwards to the outside because your defensemen are pitching down towards the net. You want your forwards being aggressive in the defensive zone, throwing hits along the boards, trying to dispossess the puck. And then you want to create that counterattack. The counterattack we know the Islanders are good at. The one you see Anthony Beauvillier lead a lot of the time because he's such an agile and quick skater. And I know I've made this comparison a number of times on the show and in on the blog at Gotham SN. The way the Islanders play teams that are better than them is the way the same exact way less talented soccer teams play. They want to absorb that pressure, force you to take a crappy shot, or force you to turn the ball over, turn the puck over in hockey case, and then counterattack going the other way. The Islanders do not have the fastest team left in the playoffs. I'd say that's probably Colorado, but they have enough team speed that they can get to offense quickly. They don't create a ton of chances off of the rush, but they do gain the offensive zone, and then they can enable their forecheck. They can cycle the puck. They can create those high-low opportunities, especially when the Pulak line is out there. Pulak has a really heavy shot, scored a couple times in that Pittsburgh series. You want to see if you can get some secondary offense from the Nick Letty-Scott Mayfield pair. I know to some of my Islander fan friends who are listening right now, the name Scott Mayfield forces some recoiling. Nick Letty, his underlying numbers are not great. He Very, very suspect defensively, but he had nice counting stats this year, lots of assists, lots of secondary assists, and inspires a little bit of confidence in the offensive zone because he's still a decent skater, but his main attribute is his vision and his ability to set up his teammates. I like what I saw from the Islanders in game number two. I think the Bruins will be fine. They are a veteran team. They score a lot of goals. I think they'll be okay to bounce back. Again, I said it on the podcast with Ethan before the playoffs really got rolling. Playing at Nassau Coliseum is different. That is one of the few home ice advantages that still matters in hockey. And those Islander fans will be a factor in that game, especially if the Islanders can get out to an early lead and they can suffocate the game away. And that's the thing. The Islanders play a style of hockey that's conducive to playing with a lead because they just suffocate your existence and make you miserable trying to get the game back in. Because let's face it, there are not a lot of teams in today's NHL that actively look to impose their will physically on you the way the Islanders do. And Yes, that does mean sometimes the Islanders are taking themselves out of position because they're throwing checks, they're chasing the puck. All things I vehemently think are signs that you are not in control of the game. But the Islanders can play that nasty game. And granted, so can the Bruins. You talk about Craig Smith, Marchand is known for that kind of thing. The Bruins just need to not shit the bed. 
and let's be honest, you know, a deflection off of a goal, off of one of your defensemen going in your own net, and then same defenseman losing train of thought, turning the puck over, Sezikis taking it going the other way. You know, if you tell the Bruins you're going to go to overtime, the shots are about even, and you got a chance to win, you know, they're going to take that every time. The, the margin between these two teams is not as dramatic as the talent base would say. I know I've picked the Islanders in the first round against Pittsburgh and a number of times in the past based on their ability to make every single game close and just hang around long enough to give themselves a chance to win. And that's ultimately the principle for the NHL playoffs is whether we're talking about the long term, like a multi-year period, or we're talking about an individual series, you just got to give yourselves enough chances at the individual instance to win and you know you're gonna get lucky sometimes you are gonna get those bounces and I tweeted this stat out yesterday and I was kind of shocked when I saw it because I was doing it in research for something else no team has more goals at five on five over the last three postseasons than the New York Islanders 77 averages out to a little bit less than two goals per game it's about 1.8 goals per game at five on five which is a good number the Bruins are a little bit higher than that the Bruins check in at about one nine goals per game at five on five and I looked this up because I was trying to see what the Leafs were average the Leafs average about 1.65 goals per game at five on five which is an important thing to note but you need that five on five production because you're assuming the top lines are going to cancel out and you're assuming both teams' power plays are going to score with some regularity in a series, and that's where your depth scoring really comes into play, and you need those goals from that secondary group. And the Islanders have gotten that. you got to see if Oliver Wallstrom is healthy enough to play. Yes, that would take Travis Zajac out of the lineup, but, 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 you need Wallstrom's finishing because it does seem like the Islanders are a little bit short in that department in terms of pure finishers. You need someone who can finish in good scoring areas, and... I know the Islanders have found a lot of success with this ugly offense of getting the puck up high, down low, back up high, point shot, redirect, the the kind of hockey I was talking about, the Hurricanes and Lightning's bottom nine forward group playing. That is kind of where the Islanders' offense is set up, and it's part of why missing Anders Lee is so important. And Anders Lee would be an absolute menace in this series because nobody on the Bruins' defense, aside from maybe Kevin Miller, would be big enough to move his enormous ass out of the way, and Lee would be able to make his presence felt in this series in a way that Leo Komarov is attempting to do, but Komarov obviously does not have the vision, the hands, the finishing ability of an Anders Lee. Now, moving right along... I feel like I have to talk about Winnipeg-Montreal now because the Vegas-Colorado game is tied, and I don't want to talk about that until that game is over. And I'll be frank, I was pretty damn impressed with what Montreal came out and did in game number one of their series against Winnipeg. They took advantage of Winnipeg's slow defense. You saw the breakaways. You saw Montreal peppering Connor Hellebuck, getting the puck, to that dangerous area of the ice between the hash marks in the middle between the circles and firing pucks away and I'll be honest I was genuinely impressed with how assertive Montreal came out and played and imposed their will on a Winnipeg team and sure it might be reasonable to say you know Winnipeg hasn't played in x number of days whereas Toronto just wrapped up their series against 
Uh, Montreal just wrapped up their series against Toronto on Monday. There's a little bit of rust. Winnipeg had to wear off. Montreal, on the other hand, was kind of really engaged right out of the gate, getting pucks in deep. And you saw it. Nick Suzuki's goal was absolutely beautiful, where he outweighted Hellebuck, waited for Hellebuck to bite, move himself out of the net, went around him, tapped it in. Beautiful offense from Suzuki. That Suzuki-Caulfield group, grouping together has been very very entertaining to watch from a purely entertainment standpoint they're creating a ton of offense neither is going to light the world on fire defensively but they don't need to you know what you're going to get from pairing gallagher brendan gallagher with philip Deneau. awesome awesome i I, it kind of seems insulting to call them a checking line because they do more than that and gallagher is such a potent offensive player when given the opportunity to but you match you hard match that group up against the Shifley Wheeler and Kyle Connor group and uh, honestly going forward Shifley being out of this series for any period of time is going to be a detriment to Winnipeg because Winnipeg depends on that first line to score a bulk of their goals because the defense isn't helping and the bottom six while not untalented is not a group that's going to be able to impose its will on a game in a way that some other team's third and fourth line might be able to. Uh, I really do worry that if Shifley is out, you're going to have to shoehorn Pierre-Luc Dubois up to that first line. And while I do think Dubois is a talented player, he hasn't exactly gelled. Uh, He really had a hard time getting acclimated. He started out relatively okay, but pretty quickly got hurt. I know he had to sit in a hotel room for two weeks because he was quarantining, wasn't able to exercise, not up to game speed. Only, I think, two practices before he got thrown into a game. Couple points in his first few games, pulled something, missed a lot of time, and hasn't really ever been able to get comfortable on that second line because, in theory, pairing him with Nikolai Ehlers should be a pretty solid group at, to build your second line around, and it just hasn't been the case for them. And Ehlers is one of the more underrated players in the entire league. He is such a good skater, he's so valuable in transition. He's one of the five best players in the league in terms of the quantity of of zone entries they create in relation to the number they attempt. He's really damn good at it. I believe the last I saw when I read Jock Hahn's series preview suggestions that Ehlers was fifth in the league behind Barzell, Jack Hughes, McDavid. So when you get Ehlers the puck in the neutral zone in transition, he's going to make shit happen because he's going to get to the offensive zone because he's so good at skating. I wonder where the Jets can find offense in this series if Shifley is going to be out any period of time. I imagine at the minimum Shifley is getting a couple of games. So even if he doesn't get suspended the entire series, he's definitely going to miss game two, three, four, maybe even more than that. But offensive-wise, Winnipeg is going to have a hard time scoring. And I got to give credit where credit is due. I don't think Montreal is a well-constructed roster. I don't think their defensive pairs are particularly good, especially because I think their forward group, when you go through it 1 through 12, is not pre- it's it's pretty solid. There's nobody in that group that scares you, really. Nobody who's going to be able to impose their will and take over a game. Same thing with the back end. There's no elite defenseman back there. There's a few guys who, once upon a time, were pretty good or have shown spurts of being good, but just not able to do it for whatever reason. And 
it's going to be hard for Montreal in a hypothetical Western Conference final against Colorado, which is where they're going to be locked to be because Colorado is going to be the highest seed left no matter if Colorado were to win their series and whoever wins of Montreal-Winnipeg is going to be the lowest seed remaining. So against a Colorado, I think Montreal gets steamrolled. But against a Winnipeg team that is pretty much entirely defendant on its forwards to create offense, I do think there's a world in which Montreal's lack of defensive ability can be made up for as long as their forwards backtrack, play tight defensively, aggressive on the forecheck, limit Winnipeg's ability to break out of the zone. And for the most part, that's what we saw in game number one. We saw Montreal being hard on the forecheck, trying to create offense that way, and it worked for them. Not the prettiest goals. You saw the one that was off a redirect from the point. You saw the Jake Evans empty net goal after Shifley injured him. And you saw the Nick Suzuki breakaway where he outweighed Hellebuck. Not, you know, this isn't high-end stuff here. This isn't anyone deking anyone out of their shoes, finding a way to beat a goalie here. This is blood and guts kind of stuff. And Montreal is going to throw a lot of pucks on net. They're going to create chances. They're going to be physical. They're going to use that Deneau-Gallagher line, and if Tatar can get back in this series healthy, they're going to use that trio as their shutdown line, and it worked for them during stretches of the regular season. Pretty damn good group. And I know Montreal does not score a ton, but they showed you the recipe to beating Winnipeg tonight. It was using transition, not being afraid from those physical board battles, and of course... They put the puck past Hellebuck, which Edmonton could not do with any real consistency. I don't know if Montreal can do this for a seven-game series. I talked about it a little bit before when I was talking about the Islanders against the Bruins. I think the Canadians can certainly hang around in this series, keep it close, and then maybe you see what happens in a game six, a game seven, if you get some overtimes in here, especially with no Shifley on a team that is really dependent on his first two lines to score goals. The Jets didn't have Paul Stotsny in game one. You're probably not going to have Shifley for a couple games. That's two of your five, six best forwards right off the bat. You you really think you're going to get a ton from the Andrew Kopp, Mason Appleton line in terms of offense? You really think Blake Wheeler and Kyle Connor together, who have been horrendous defensively, are going to be able to survive with Pierre-Luc Dubois in the middle of them, and then that takes him away from Ehlers? You're going to move Kopp up to play with Ehlers if Shifley is suspended? There's just so many moving parts, and it feels crazy to say after one game, especially because of the series I'm about to talk about against Colorado and making snap judgments off of one game, but... It really does seem like Winnipeg is going to be shorthanded for a lot of this series, and that is going to be a serious factor between two teams that don't score a ton of goals. Sure, Winnipeg's defense did not kill them against Edmonton, but I think that was more in part because Hellebuck was standing on his head as opposed to them doing anything particularly well defensively. I think Montreal has more forward depth, and I really do think that's going to be the determining factor if the Montreal bottom six can outscore the Winnipeg bottom six, I think Montreal can win this series in five or six games. And I know it sounds weird saying that. Now, transitioning to the Vegas-Colorado series. That is tied at two. There's a minute to go in the third period. Colorado just killed off a big, big penalty. And I'm very, very impressed by the way the Golden Knights responded in game number two after getting absolutely thumped in game one. Anytime you give up seven goals in a playoff game, 
you know some things went wrong it just wasn't your day and things compounded snowballed one into the other that kind of thing i didn't think vegas was that much worse than colorado and to be fair i think colorado is probably the best team in the league and that's without Nazim Kadri, who should be back pretty soon for them, actually. As long as he doesn't go do anything stupid in his return, it'll help to have him back. You're talking about a team that was almost 60% of the expected goals during the regular season and has probably the best one through six defensemen if everybody's healthy in the entire league. So I'm not going to talk about the series for too, too long because, you know, there's a game still being played right now. This game probably might end up going to overtime, but I will say the things to watch. Number one, Colorado in transition. Their defensemen are so effective at skating the puck out of their own zone They don't get hemmed in their own zone for any long periods of time. And then once they gain the offensive zone, that puck is on a string getting whipped around the ice trying to create a passing lane into a shooting lane because they have such good defensemen in terms of moving the puck and finding guys open. I mean, you watch Kale McCarr navigate that blue line, and it's like watching one of your friends play ESHL because they can see the whole ice from the drop-down view, and he's always making the right pass. He never gets his shot block going back the other way. He... He might be the best defenseman in the league, and I'd say that as a devout Adam Fox and devout Charlie McAvoy guy. I really think McCarr might be that special of a player. And on a team like Colorado where, you know, it's not like he has the hardest job in the world because of the group in front of him that makes his life a little bit easier. That Rantanen, Landeskog, McKinnon line is downright scary. Anytime Nathan McKinnon touches the puck, he might break the game. He finds Rantanen. He finds Landeskog. Offense. Brandon Sodden transition. Offense. Colorado just has so many different ways to create offense. And that's the key here. They have so many ways to find offense. And on top of that, they have good team defense. And they've made their life, their goaltender, Philip Grubauer's life easier. And Grubauer's been the difference tonight in game two. Vegas has outplayed them for, I'd say, a solid 30 of the 60 minutes in this game. Colorado came out flying, got an early lead. Vegas fought their way back, outshot them in the third period, last half of the second period. And Grubauer was the difference in dragging this game to overtime. It would have been, I think about Colorado last year where they were stuck with Francois in net and you're down to Josh Hutchinson in net, you know, fourth, fifth string goaltenders. And it's not great. But this year, Grubauer has been really good for them. He was the difference in game number two. All I'm going to say about Vegas is their bottom six worries me. I know Alex Tuck is a pretty good player to have on your third line, but aside from him, none of them, whether you're talking about uh, Kolasar, you're talking about Carrier, uh, Jankowski has been hurt, uh, Ryan Reeves, no one in that bottom six really drives possession all that well. I know Jankowski played really well in the last series. He had a hat trick against the Wild, but I just don't... I thought this would be the team that could give... Colorado the best fight before Tampa Bay in a prospective cup final, but it's going to take a lot from Vegas. Vegas is going to have to play pretty close to a perfect game most nights to have a good chance, but I will say it was really encouraging that, to see them adjust it in the middle of game number two and find a way to drive possession, and if they end up winning this game after I'm done recording, good on Vegas for finding a way against a team that's probably better than them.
Okay. All of that said, that's about all the time I have left. I do want to watch overtime with my full attention, my full focus. I hope you guys enjoyed today's show. Remember, if you're on Apple Podcast, throw a subscribe. Go down to the show's homepage, leave a five-star review, leave a written review. If you're on Spotify, SoundCloud, Google Play, Stitcher, any other podcasting platform, please throw the show a follow. It means the world. We're grinding hard out here. Lots of content to be done. All that said, I will see you guys tomorrow. Have a good one.